Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, a podcast where we talk about movies through an anti-capitalist lens. My name is Frank. And I'm Rivka. And this is a brand new, very exciting week for the two of us. So we've officially launched a Patreon account, which is where you, our wonderful listeners, can uh, head on over to find all of our all of our stuff, all the Movies vs. Capitalism content. We'll have all of our premium episodes over there. Um, anytime we do new bonus content, that's where you'll be able to find it. Um, we're going to get like the chats up and running so we can maybe even a Discord at some point so we can communicate directly with our our listeners. But yeah, this is a this is a cool new addition. So if you if you want to support the show, uh, we highly recommend you go check out our Patreon and sign up for a subscription. And we should also let everyone know that this show, Movies vs. Capitalism, is no longer a production of The Lever. Uh, we are extremely, extremely grateful to The Lever and to David Sirota for giving us the uh, the launching pad. But uh, as of now, this is going to be an independent production. So if you want, you can head on over to our Patreon. And the link for that is right in the episode description in your podcast player or at mvcpod.com. Yeah, you said it all, Frank. It's exciting. I am a fan of Patreon because that's you know, I subscribe to a lot of different podcasts that I enjoy there. So it's exciting to know that now we will be available for all of you to show some support if you can and you desire to. So I guess this we'll, we'll jump into our plugs here and then we'll get into the show. Because as you know, we don't sell ads on this show. What that means is that we rely completely on our community to help support us keep the show going. And just, we, we say this every week, but I want to get just a little bit more specific since this is our transition time that Frank and I really do, it's just us who do the labor to make this show keep running. Of course, we have our amazing guests every week, but we divide the labor between the two of us. Um, we both take turns. Well, now Frank has been editing the show, the audio for the show. I'm learning. And so I'm going to take on some of that now. We do our social media. We do our booking of guests. There's just a there's a lot of. We watch we, the movies. We watch the movies, which believe it or not, I mean, I will say, coming in, I was like, that'll be the easiest part. It's yeah, it's a lot of. We love it, but it is it is the necessary labor um, that it takes to put this show together. And so we do rely. Most shows would um, sell ads, and that would pay for that. Again, we don't. That's not in our value system, and we decided that when we came together to make this show. So that is what your just your five dollars a month subscription would would go towards. And yeah, we that, bumped it down from eight. Ooh, we bumped it down from eight. You can, of course, there are. You'll notice if you go to our page, there are different tiers, if you will. If it's if eight was something you felt comfortable with, is possible. But five dollars, it also gives you access on our Patreon now to our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. If you join, so all of those premium episodes, Frank moved them onto there, which was again a lot of labor and effort. But you will be able to get those, and then you'll get all of our premium episodes moving forward, which is something that we both talked about wanting to invest even more time, time and effort. We have been, but just more time and effort into so. Again, you can get all of that at our Patreon. 
And we're going to be doing even more, you know, one-off movie premium episodes on our Patreon. So effectively, we're just going to be doing an extra episode or two every month, uh, you know, talking about movies. So if you want to get even more of us talking about movies, that's where you got to go now. And it's a great way. You will automatically become part of our, I think, we'll, we'll if you sign up, you become part of our mailing list and our community. And I just want to underscore that again, that part of what's been such a joy of creating this show is the community building and getting to build relationships with people who have been listening and sharing their politics with us and writing it about their thoughts on films. And so that to me is something really exciting about the potential of this Patreon and this Discord is building that conversation and inviting more of a dialogue with our audience in. And again, the link for that is in the episode description in your podcast player or at mvcpod.com. Also, if you want to help us out for free, you can uh, subscribe and leave a rating and review for this show on your podcast player, which boosts the algorithm and gets the show in front of more people. And it's extremely helpful. So thank you, everyone who's written a review. And thank you, everyone who will do so in the future. So we wanted to chat a little bit before we get into our interview about Face Off, um, because there's been some pretty huge news. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, February 26th, and we wanted to talk about yesterday. Uh, there was a there was a U.S. serviceman, I believe he was in the Air Force, uh, a, a man named Aaron Bushnell. I believe he was 25 years old. Some of you may have heard about this, but if not, it's a fairly graphic story. Just a heads up. Um, but this but this guy, Aaron Bushnell, on yesterday on Sunday, went in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington D.C. and uh, as a form of protest against Israel's war in Gaza, uh, Aaron self-immolated. And, you know, as you can imagine, the coverage of this is is very graphic. It's very um, upsetting. But something that is very important as a part of this is Aaron's explanation and justification for why he chose this form of protest, to protest the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And he was very, very clear eyed about this. If you've read any coverage, um, I'll read a little bit of his his statement that he made. He said, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest. But compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. And then it's reported that as Aaron self-immolated, he chanted Free Palestine until he was no longer able to. And very sadly, we learned today that uh, Aaron succumbed to his burns and is no longer with us. So I know that this is a little bit of a deviation from normal, you know, media conversation, entertainment conversation, but... But we, but we all, but we felt that it actually kind of was because yeah. we, we wanted to talk a little bit about. And, I, and we'll, of course, I think just to add in, we th- this show is about media; it's about politics, right? So yes, of course. And it, so, of course, we'll we're going to keep talking about this. Um, I don't know as you as you read those words. I've been thinking about Aaron's words all day, and the last part just struck me. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. And I think, you know, I, I've i been attending and, and facilitating different grief groups for Gaza, which has been a community that's been really um, essential to part of my activism in this. And something that people are grieving is this dystopic reality where 
which makes sense as we know that divide between the ruling class and the working class and the elite class and that economic divide, but also the cultural divide and the division of like reality. It, it's so profound now to, and we see this in our media and the representation to watch all of these events occurring as if, particularly in our music and our films, these events occurring as if nothing else is happening or as if two things can be true at once. And of course that's true, but like that they're not going to merge. It's just, there's so much, I don't know if gaslighting is the right term. I think there, I think there's a certain level of that, but just a, I don't even have the right words, but there's such a deep grief in that, that people are feeling. And this unbelievably courageous act that I wish never had to happen, but it mm -hmm. is part of revealing it. This is part of the, what I hear in those words is that the, the desire was to reveal this to us, particularly on American soil, where this illusion has taken such hold. Um, and I'm thinking again about the ruling class and how that manifests in our entertainment culture and our celebrity culture. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. And how, you know, and we were talking about how few of our, there's a fight for, there's a fight within these unions, which we've spoken a lot about throughout the summer. SAG-AFTRA has not made a statement. DGA has not made a statement. There's a lot of internalized conversations, groups pushing for them to make a statement one way or the other. I do want to point out that um, that the Animation Guild, IATSE Local 839, is now the first one of Hollywood's unions to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. So while, you know, while these might just seem like words, like discourse, it is everyone, it, it is part of trying to rip down the walls of this illusion that the the normalization of the ruling class, which I think Bushnell, which Aaron was speaking to. And you and I were talking about this a little. I saw some discourse about this on, on someone's TikTok, but it, it's really profound. I've been helping a friend work on her story, which has a lot to do with her role in the 60s with the Black Panthers. And so much of that world was about like Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and the music of the time and how actually the music of the time made her aware of this story and got her radicalized. And it's really also so profound how if you were just to listen to the music of our time, right now and watch the films of our time right now and that was the only access you had to like looking back based on like the 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 mainstream music you would have no fucking idea what was going on or in the 60s you would listen to dylan you would listen to hendrix that music was reflective of what was happening at the time yeah protest music that was politically charged protest music that was a that's a huge part of music of that era of the of the late 60s and early 70s um, from everyone from like you're saying Bob Dylan to Bruce Springsteen it was very regular to see musical artists you know engage in some sort of protest or e even just speaking their opinion through the use of their art and I think that speaks to just the stage of capitalism where it you know it's pushed it so far that artists might even even if an artist is speaking out that it's not even going to be part of the music you know that but that's separate 
that's an outlet. That's a and I'm, that's not to say there aren't artists doing this and there aren't artists using their voices. I'm talking about I'm talking about the Grammys. Sure, yeah. Sure. You couldn't hear a, a damn song there that was reflective of any anything. And I don't know why it, music is what's coming to mind because it was so influential in the '60s. And I think this this act is making me think about that. But it makes a lot of sense. And what has been happening in Gaza has been normalized to the point where everyone else who is actually seeing what is happening for what it is, it, it, we've talked about on the show, it, it makes you feel crazy. It makes you feel crazy because all of the powers that be, the ruling class has decided this is normal. So whether you are, you know, actress Melissa Barrera who speaks out and loses your job on the screen movie. Nope, you're not allowed to say that. Whether it's Rashida Tlaib in Congress saying from the river to the sea, nope, she's the only member of Congress that has been censured. Even though a Republican House member literally just said something along the lines of slaughter them all, but there's no recourse to, to someone like that. And when this level of violence is not only is not only perpetrated but is then normalized by our politicians by our media it it leaves you feeling like there is like you are crazy and like there's nothing to do and i've been seeing a lot of people write about this unbelievable sacrifice that aaron made and self-immolation is it is the greatest form of protest it is sacrificing your own life in a way that is unignorable we're four, what, four plus months into this conflict and into this genocide, into this genocide. And I, I, I'm personally at a loss for words right now because I, I know you and I have been on the roller coaster and I, I should say on the roller coaster of, you know, being comfortable Americans who live within the empire. But like the roller coaster of watching this happen, watching our government be complicit in this being in the streets, calling our representatives, feeling like there have been moments that, you know, maybe maybe the tide was turning, maybe people are actually starting to listen, and then just finding ourselves back on this hamster wheel of violence. And what you said was perfect. I, I, I wish we weren't in a situation where he had to do what he did or where he felt like he had to do what he did. But the fact that he did, that is... I, I, I don't think there's a greater form of selflessness than that. No, there's not really much else to say other than free Palestine. Yeah, free Palestine. All right, well, it is time to get on to our interview for today. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. It was one of my favorites. Just a quick heads up. We had some audio issues. You probably won't really even notice, but if you do, we apologize. My bad. <laughs> Got to check the mics better before recording. Um, all right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Madeline Pendleton talking about Face Off. Today we are joined by Madeline Pendleton. Madeline is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, I Survived Capitalism and All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt. She's the host of the podcast Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, and the founder of the worker-centered clothing brand Tunnel Vision. Madeline, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you on. Frank, I think, booked you as a guest, but I knew you because you've been popping up all over my TikTok, particularly with tunnel vision will you just jump in and tell us about your clothing brand because it's very cool i know our audience is going to be very into everything that you do yeah so i have a clothing brand that i've run for 12 years sorry i have a dog on my lap also so she, <laughs> it's all right she, she's sleeping right now a cat might pop up at some point on my end so 
pet-friendly podcast. Okay, great. So I've run Tunnel Vision for 12 years now, and I have tried various different ways to make it like a worker-centered business, and some of them failed early on. But our current model that we operate from usually gets people pretty interested. The main thing that's different about our business is that everybody who works at the company from me, I am the legal sole owner, but that's mostly just because it makes it easier for us to access financing and the other workers aren't ready sure. to merge into a co-op yet, but I tell them they will have to eventually. But yeah, everybody for me is the legal sole owner all the way down to an intern. We all earn the exact same take-home pay per day work. And we have a standard four-day work week, which is 28 hours. And we also um, have a break-even model where we aim not to profit beyond just, you know, there's like a difference in business. It's really boring, but it's gross profit versus net profit. So we do the gross profit, right, which just pays for our business to basically exist. And the net profit is usually what owners would siphon off for themselves as part of their pay. We aim for a break-even model. We don't strive to have any profit. But one year, we actually accidentally ended up with a lot of profit, and we just distributed it up amongst all the workers equally. <laughs> and everybody voted to use a huge chunk of it to buy everybody who worked at the company a new car because their cars were in bad shape. So, Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So we get to, like, vote on – we have workplace democracy, so that would be, like, a big thing we voted on, for example. Like, what do we want to do with this money? That is the only version of you get a car. <laughs> you get a car. You get a car. I mean, it was really fun. And there was like this moment where I was like on my sixth car purchase of the month. And I went to buy this car and all of the salespeople are really condescending, you know, especially me. I'm like, I'm five foot two and I have like wacky blue hair and fishnet tights on. And they're like, OK, little one, like, what are you doing here? And when it came time to pay, I just like plopped down an Amex Platinum card. And they were like, do you need to call first to make sure this will go through? And I was like, it'll go through. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I get how rich people get so evil. Like, it's kind of fun to be like, I Damn. can just spend money. But, you know, I was spending the company was spending money to buy one of our workers a car. So a little different, I guess. Can I ask how many years you've had this model, this profit sharing democratic model? Yeah, so this current model, I think, has operated for around six years. Um, wow. Before that, the other models we tried were still based in socialist theory, but they were harder to implement within a system of capitalism. We tried one year, for example, where I tried to kind of take the worker co-op idea and the idea of like the workers owning the means of production, right? And I made it really literal. The company sells clothes. So we ran it kind of as this cooperative movement where for all the hours you put into work, you were allowed to sell whatever you wanted on the website. And then a portion of all of our sales individually would go to pay the overhead of the company and the rest we just kept which sounds good in theory, but in a free market system, what ended up happening is that I accidentally created like macro girl boss culture. Like it just became a nightmare where all of a sudden everybody had to like be hyper aware of market trends at all times. And then you add this like really unequal distribution of pay because some people were just like inherently more hip with the market and knew what would sell. So you had people working the same amount of hours and some were making next to nothing and some were making way more than everyone else. And I was like, oh, okay, this is just not working. So that was like one example of another system we tried in the past, still rooted in socialist theory, but it took us time to find our footing with which one made the most sense, given the fact that we have to exist within the walls of free market capitalism around us. 
That is so cool. I love hearing about the process and that there's a process to trying it out. And exactly like you're saying, it's theory until you try it out. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of how we try out new ways of making theater, making film, that it really is, you have to be willing to sort of mess it up a little bit and figure out what works and what doesn't. And it's great to hear an example of eventually reaching success. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have tried so many things that have failed. Uh, I wish I could go back in time with all the knowledge I have now. It would make life so easy. But the current system we have, um, I feel like it's a more humane approach because it recognizes intrinsically that not everybody is capable of doing the same tasks. Everybody's labor and skill set will be different, but all people are valuable, even if their contributions can't be equal 100% of the time. It's amazing. And it's incredible. And it these models are so crucial, especially today. And it's so important to have a model when someone says to you, socialism doesn't work. And you can actually point to people, to organizations, to businesses, whatever, and be like, nope, there it is. There it is. There it is working just fine. So maybe like once we see more models like this, we can start moving past that part of the conversation. Yes. A thing I always tell people is that our business could fail at any moment. Businesses love to fail. But if it does, it will never be because of how we distributed payroll. Absolutely. That is not an issue our business faces. All the issues that we have to deal with are uh, based on competing in the free market, which we don't get to control. So, Well, I cannot wait to hear how your mind dissects this film you chose for us to watch. But we did decide before we started recording that we will be calling this a film. <laughs> this is not a movie. This is, is a, a film. film. It is a film. We are talking about Face Off, directed by John Woo, written by Mike Werb and Michael Kaliri, starring John Travolta, Nick Cage, Joan Allen, Gina Gershon, and Alessandro Nivolo, Nivola, and also Margaret Cho. Budget for this film was $80 million, which seems, I don't know, in my head it seems, that seems low, this is so epic, but the budget was $80 million, and it made $245 million worldwide. And quick recap for everyone, in order to foil a terrorist plot, FBI agent Sean Archer assumes the identity of the criminal mastermind Caster Troy through facial transplant surgery. But when Caster wakes up prematurely, he steals Sean's face and assumes his identity, pitting the two men against each other in a game of cat and mouse and faces. <laughs> Frank Frank wrote that synopsis and you just the, I hope Thank I you. sold Thank the you. dot 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 and faces. <laughs> I felt an ellipses in my bones. Yep. Truly you did. Yeah. My favorite thing too is that we get the titular line. We get face off uh like four times in one scene. Uh, in the middle of the surgeries happening. So that's how you know it's a really good film is when you get to hear the title of the film four <laughs> times back to back within like a 30 second span. Really to just drive the concept home. If you didn't know, if you didn't know, this, we're going to be switching faces in this movie. <laughs> right. And, and, it, and it has two meanings because they're facing off against each other while taking Whoa. each other's faces off. So that's, it's, it's, it's smart, I know. It's a very, wow. uh, you know, academic kind of a high-end film to really wrap that's, your head around, I'm aware. I did not pick up on that. That's really impressive. You should actually host this podcast instead of me, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> All right, so a little, a little bit of historical context for when this film was released. Released on June 27th, 1997. This is the same year as the movies Titanic and Good Burger, which we have also covered on this podcast. 
Bill Clinton just began his second term as president. In February, a Santa Monica jury finds O.J. Simpson civilly liable for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. In March, 24-year-old rapper Notorious B.I.G. is killed in a drive-by shooting shortly after leaving a party in Los Angeles. Also in March, 39 of the Heaven's Gate cultists commit mass suicide at their compound in San Diego. In June, during a boxing match in Las Vegas, Mike Tyson bites off part of Evander Holyfield's ear. In September, the URL google.com is registered by Google. The median household income is $37,000. A first class stamp is 32 cents and a gallon of gas is $1.23. Wow. You know what? In reading all that, the mid 90s were like, Bill Clinton's president, neoliberalism is here to stay. All we have to worry about is like guys biting off other guys' ears during a boxing match. Like that's the most important thing that we got to worry about right now. I mean, I am a little shocked actually just hearing how much was packed into that one year um, because I, I feel like that was my whole childhood, but it really just happened at the same time Face Off came out. So this is really mind-blowing to me. So why did you choose this film? for us to watch. Film. This film. So Face Off is my favorite film because I'm a person of class and taste and distinction, obviously. But no, this is a movie I grew up watching. I watched this movie with my dad, speaking of the childhood things. And, you know, it, it just really is in this like core memory of my brain is watching types of movies like this. It's Con Air, it's Face Off. It's kind of copaganda, but then also there's this weird kind of subtext wherein the criminals are humanized. And I I would say we've never seen a villain as intriguing as the villain in this movie, right? Caster Troy. Sure. Um, like he has charisma. He is revolting. He is appealing. He is everything all at once. And one of the things I really like about these like generic action movies from the 90s is that like we see in this movie, we never actually quite understand what type of terrorism Castor Troy is doing and why. There's like a vague reference to North Korea. Like I have seen this movie hundreds of times and I still don't understand the full scope of the plot. Like, as far as I can tell, North Korea is paying Castor Troy $10 million to blow up LA, but that's like all kind of, that's an aside. It doesn't even really matter what type of bad guy he is. Like, the scope of his badness is more in his character than his actions. And I think that this is like something we could not get away with in movies today, you know? Oh, no. Yeah, as long as something blew up in the 90s, we were happy. And I think it was a simpler time in many ways. And that's why I have such a fondness for this movie. It's like, it doesn't matter. North Korea is mentioned once. It's a throwaway line. We hear something about $10 million, maybe. But really, the point is just to watch Nicolas Cage and John Travolta pretend like they are each other. And there is beauty in that simplicity. Oof, loved all that. It was my first time. Was this a uh, first time for you, Frank, or was I the only no, one? No, I, I have seen this movie before. It had been a little while, but yeah, I had seen it. A few times? or Like, was this something you watched a lot, or...? Yeah, this was something that would occasionally be on, like, a buddy's house at a sleepover, or, yeah. you know, you'd, ca you'd catch some of it on, you know, the USA network, except it would be, you know, censored and, or, like, cut for TV, and you'd be like, well, this isn't fun. Then none, none of the truly depraved stuff is in this, but, yeah, I'd seen it a few times. I was busy cutting out pictures of Leonardo DiCaprio and making earrings to sell. Like, I was full on in my Titanic phase when I clearly should have been in my face-off phase. 
who would I have been if I was cutting out pictures of Nick Cage on one ear and John Travolta on the other? You'd be me, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's I because when I saw this movie for the first time, I was like, this is it. This is as good as film can get. Nothing can trump this. Like I was immediately taken with this as a child. And uh, my friends today often make fun of me because they're like, all you need for a movie to be enjoyable is for things to explode. And I'm like, this movie has so many explosions. We have the constant threat of explosion. We have at one point, maybe a boat blows up. There is a boat chase inexplicably at the end of this movie. It's just nonstop quality entertainment and again like the only movie i could think of that's as entertaining i think is con air it's all real tangible like it's not special effects i think i read that it was supposed to be more sci-fi and john Woo was like no i i won't do sci-fi i'm not good with special effects it has to be all real things being blown up and it's epic the original script was originally set in space i read in my research wow. and john Woo was like that's unbelievable Everything else we're doing in this movie, totally plausible, but going to space, that is a bridge too far for us. Well, you know, the United States, we're not the best at our space travel. So I think that was maybe John Woo <laughs> is realistic. It's not one of our strong suits. But we have some great plastic surgeons. Yeah. <laughs> and that's believable. That's believable. But Madeline, this, this film has, you know, one million explosions. It also has two of the most unhinged film performances that I can recall. Like I, I, like John Travolta and Nick Cage in this movie are living on another planet. Brilliant. With like how, how big and ridiculous and truly unbelievable their performances are. If you've never seen this movie, you would watch these guys and you would say like, oh, well that's, that, that's wrong. Like that's incorrect acting. And you would be correct, but it, somehow it, it works in this, in this ridiculous heightened film that John Woo has set up here. I mean, it's really an exploration in surrealism at a certain point, the whole movie. There actually is a scene where uh, the main character, John Travolta, you know, he's the good guy. This is a real movie where we have good guys and bad guys, right? So we've got John Travolta's daughter, Jamie, at one point has just been vaguely sexually harassed by the villain wearing her dad's meat suit. And she is noticeably shaken and she collapses into her mother's arms and she goes, what planet am I on? And that really summarizes that right. the entire movie. Yeah. The acting yeah. is so over the top. There's like these scenes that haunt me in my dreams. We've got Nicolas Cage pretending to be John Travolta being him. Right. Which is, is yep. that I get so lost in who is pretending to be whom and when. So there's this a the scene where Nicolas Cage is looking in the mirror, maybe, and he's having this meltdown and he's just yelling, I'm Caster Troy over and over again. And you've never seen something so melodramatic in your life. And in that moment, you feel for him. You feel for Agent Sean Archer, you know, and I think the overacting really helps remind you who is who, because it's so easy to lose track of what's actually happening here. So it, it truly is just a different planet that we're on now. It's so interesting that you say that because that was one of the things as I was looking at it through the lens of politics that I was most drawn to was this feeling of getting lost in who's pretending to be who. Like you said, we kind of go in with a clear sense of who the good guy and who the bad guy is, even though their politics and the and the reasons that they are good guys and bad guys are only because they told us that. We don't really know why anyone's a good guy or a bad guy. And so then when they switch faces and there's this just like constant anxiety of like who's who 
it's like this massive gaslighting. It just this is what it feels like to be in our current climate politically in the U.S. when you have a political party like the Democrats and the Republicans constantly saying like we're the good guys and you're the bad guys and you're this. But they keep doing things that are so similar, having such similar policies. And it just feels like, oh, we are the Joan Allen. We're the wife and the daughter. And like Nick Cage and John Travolta are the Republicans and the Democrats. And they're just face switching. And ultimately, like, it doesn't matter because there is this in this film. The only reason someone's good is because the movie's like, oh, remember, they're good. Yeah, I like this a lot. One of the things that I found interesting is that both Sean Archer, who's our good guy, he's the FBI agent, right? He's the counter-terrorist covert unit that at one point he says is so covert, you snap your fingers and nothing happens. He is full of critiques in this movie of the federal government. He at one point makes a critique of the CIA. He at one point makes a critique of the Fourth Amendment. He at one point makes a critique of the LAPD. So we see Sean Archer is not happy with the system that he is operating within, right? But he is supposed to be our good guy, the, the law man. But the whole time he's critiquing the law. He's critiquing the government. He's critiquing the federal government. And then we have Castor Troy on the opposite end, who is doing the exact same thing. But the only difference that we see as consumers of this media between the two is that Castor Troy is having fun with it and Sean Archer isn't. And and the thing I really like, in a lot of ways, I think this is an anti-carceral movie. This is what I take from it. Ooh, okay. Yeah, when Sean Archer is forced to go live as Castor Troy, he befriends all of Castor Troy's old friends. And you really see like, the criminals, the bad guys, the lines start to blur here because you see the criminals and bad guys presented as human for the first time. You know, early on, we see the scene of Sean Archer, FBI agent, hassling this woman, telling her, you know, I'm going to get your kid taken away from you, which I think is an excellent reference point to how CPS, Child Protection Services, often operates uh, adjacent to policing, right? We see this. He's like, I'm going to take your kid from you. And and I, this is a tool to get her to comply with the federal government. And this takes us to that whole idea where like CPS are cops too. And then when he's undercover, he really sees her humanity. And and he learns more about her. And he we kind of see that she actually is Caster Choi's on-again, off-again girlfriend. She's probably a victim of domestic abuse in some way. She has a son with Caster Choi. You know, we learn that he's the father of her son. And at the end of the movie, Sean Archer tells her, whatever happens, Sean Archer is off your back for good. Because he's humanized her and he's seen she's not just a bad guy. She's this complicated three-dimensional character who's had her own struggles in her life that led her to be in this position. And another person he does this with is her brother, who is also part of Caster Choi's crew, Dietrich, right? And we hear the throwaway line about North Korea. They're like, oh, well, Dietrich's deal with North Korea. And he's supposed to be this bad guy. But there's a scene during a shootout where we see this tender moment of him with his nephew. They put headphones on the nephew during a shootout. So he's not listening to I would say thousands of people dying. It's just one of the most epic <laughs> shootout scenes ever. Um, but he goes to his nephew and he's like, you're like so brave. You got this little buddy. You're doing great. So we we really see that Sean Archer, when he is forced to see how the other half lives, the criminals, the villains, the bad guys amongst us, he says that they have these individual stories that brought them to this point where they are. And 
And I think in that way, we as the audience learn that who is good and who is bad, it is arbitrary. It's arbitrary based on the environment you grew up in, based on the community you keep, based on what you have to do to survive. And we don't know much about Caster Troy's backstory, but his brother, Pollux Troy, is a central character in the film as well. And we know that Castor is a caretaker for his brother. He ties his shoes for him. He makes sure he gets his medication. And I would say Pollux Troy is heavily autistically coded, I would think. Sure. Um, you know, so we see that whatever happened in their childhood, Castor was forced to be this caretaker for his brother. And so I really, the thing I like about this movie is I think that it is a movie of Sean Archer realizing that the carceral system one, vilifies people who probably just need better access to resources and prison doesn't change them. Anybody, too, who goes into prison doesn't come out reformed. They come out more aggressive, more angry, more ready to commit crimes because they have fewer resources. And three, when he actually talks to these people, they aren't just absent-minded bad guys. There's humanity there. There's a scene in prison where he actually recruits another criminal to try to help him escape. And when they're escaping, he tries to save this guy's life and the guy falls to his death and he seems genuinely upset about it. He realizes this was a good man. He just was in a bad place at a bad time and ended up here. And another thing too that I think about the carceral thing that goes in with this is when Sean Archer is forced to live as a prisoner in the the su- okay, the super high security prison where they all wear <laughs> magnet shoes. That felt like a leftover from the space concept. I mean, I'm glad he did because truly phenomenal. Um, but yeah, when he's in Magnet Shoes fake space prison, the guards tell him like the Geneva Convention doesn't exist here. Nobody knows you are here. Like your ass is mine. Like whatever I say goes. And I've had friends who are incarcerated and they describe these similar situations where you're like, I am not viewed as human. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter if I was wrongfully convicted, like Sean Archer's in there undercover. He's an innocent man. It doesn't matter who's innocent, who's guilty, the nature of your crimes. Once you're in prison, whatever that prison guard, not elected, not representing the people, just some guy who got hired for the job, whatever he says goes. And I think that Sean Archer realizes this. He's an innocent man in prison. And he's like, oh, I have no recourse. My only option is to become a criminal myself to escape this. Mm. So I think it says a lot about like the inevitability of like uh, rebelling against the carceral system and how oppressive it is. Damn, okay. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was, thank you. <laughs> that was like college <laughs> dissertation level analysis. Thank you. Hence this film. <laughs> Hence the film. It's a film, yes. I'm glad you touched on the stuff with Sean Archer, him utilizing the state for this obsession of his, which is to catch Castor Troy. One thing, oh, one thing we haven't mentioned is that the reason Sean Archer is so obsessed with catching Castor Troy is because Castor Troy murdered Sean Archer's like five-year-old son in the in the first scene of the movie. Um, but you're right, he he wants all of the functions of the state to basically bend to his will the entire time. He's always upset when the state isn't acting fast enough to, you know, just pursue his just his blind obsession. And I think this is this has a lot to say about like what the destructive obsession of, is afforded to men in power, especially in an agency like the FBI, you know, makes me think of someone like J. Edgar Hoover, who basically was like using the FBI to do his own personal bidding. And Sean Archer is basically the same person when we are introduced and he's pissed when the FBI isn't moving fast enough to, you know, circumvent uh, the judiciary or other legal proceedings to try to catch this guy. And you're right, there's a, there's a really sharp contrast between the two of them because like, 
Archer is the quote unquote good guy, but he's the shittier person, maybe. Like, sh- he's a shitty boss. He's a shitty husband. He's a shitty father. But then on the other side, you have Caster Troy, who, as you're saying, is like a really loving caretaker to his brother, and then has this really supportive community of international terrorist criminal friends. So it it, it does. It does a really good job of sort of uh, flipping these dynamics on their head and making you look at who is writing these labels and, and why they get assigned to these different groups. Yeah, it is really interesting to see, too, that uh, Caster Troy, when he is wearing the Sean Archer skin suit, becomes a better husband and father than Sean Archer ever was. He listens to his wife, his not real wife, obviously. He pays attention to what she needs. He prioritizes her. The daughter, the teenage goth daughter, right? He protects her from being sexually assaulted from a date in a car in front of their house. And he gives her a knife and is like, this is how you defend yourself. So in a lot of ways, yeah, we see that the bad guy is better at moving through community spaces than this quote unquote good man is. Now, a thing I picked up on politically, though, that was interesting is that both utilize the patriarchy in different ways. Both are viewing women as objects. Um, The difference is that Sean Archer, our good guy, he is viewing his wife and his daughter as things to be protected, right? It's a very patriarchal control uh, based thing. He doesn't see their humanity. That's why he's such a bad husband and father. He can't pay attention to what they need. He just knows that it's his duty to protect them as his prized objects, right? But on the flip side, Castor Troy, the way he interacts with women throughout the movie is he is just overtly sexually aggressive to all women. There's actually a funny bit in there that seems to be uh, kind of mocking the church because Caster Troy is dressed up as a priest. Unbelievable shit. It's a fantastic scene. Uh, And he's being vile and grotesque while wearing this like Catholic priest outfit to the extent that he approaches what looks to to me like a teenage girl, like a child, like a teen. Definitely a teenage girl, yeah. Yeah, and he like gropes her very aggressively and nobody bats an eye as he's doing this. And it, and to me, that's a nice little aside where you're like these institutions, like the institution of the FBI, the institution of the United States, the institution of the constitution, the institution of the carceral system, the institution of the church, these all seek to harbor bad men and protect them. So when Castor Troy moves as a villain through the Catholic church, and it's only in the title scene, we see this, it's only a few seconds, nobody bats an eye because this is apparently normal priest behavior. Sure. Which right. I think yeah. is very fascinating so i think there's a lot of critiques of just like systemic institutions in this movie and i don't even know if the movie's aware it is critiquing them but it's happening constantly yeah i would agree i want to dig into the character of jamie a little bit more as you mentioned she's sort of this punk american daughter my favorite intro to her is how they make reference to that she's getting bullied because she's we know it's how she dressed and she turns around in this close-up and has this incredible eye makeup on but it's a great shot and he says to her you know you change your hair and makeup every week who who are you supposed to be and she says i'm supposed to be me not like you have a clue who I am anyway. And then later it's addressed to her when Caster Troy becomes her dad is dressed, like you said, in the skin suit of her father. And there is this really creepy exchange where 
he comes on to her. And the one thing I really, I it just made me cringe so much was how she kind of liked getting the attention from dad. Like there was like this weird incestuous, like her character didn't get any agency of like, ugh, what? And he says to her, dress up like Halloween and ghouls will try to get in your pants. And then at the end of the film, she's like returns to sort of your all-American girl, no makeup, no Halloween costume. So I'm just curious what you thought of the messaging of the character of Jamie. Yeah, I love Jamie as a character. Um, I think it is interesting. Yeah. So at first, when she notices a change in her dad's behavior, it is kind of weirdly sexually charged. But you can see that she is more intrigued just that, yeah, her dad is humanizing himself to her. So I don't think she initially is picking up on the sexually charged nature of the dynamic. But at the end, when it goes full blown, John Woo boats are chasing each other. Everything's on fire mode. There's a scene where as her dad, Caster Troy, grabs her, holds her close, has a gun and licks her ear. And this is when it's impossible to ignore yep. that this is sexual energy. And that's the scene in which she collapses in her mom's arms after escaping and says, what planet am I on? Well, first she stabs him. Oh, that's right. She stabs him. She like saves the day with the knife that he gives her and she stabs him in the, which is great. Right. It's totally great. Yeah. So I do think it's funny, though, at the end of the movie, Sean Archer gets everything he wants. He gets his wife back. He gets to kill the bad guy. He gets his son back, kind of, because his son had died. But remember, Caster Troy had a son and he ends up adopting Caster Troy's son, which, again, speaks to the the CPS adoption rhetoric where it's like we view children as commodities to go to parents who want children and sean archer is a parent who wanted a child his son died and he has this really creepy scene maybe where he's high on ecstasy uh at like all the terrorist international i don't know criminal rings house and he's the coolest loft in downtown los angeles that you've ever seen it's so cool and there's also a line where deatrick is just like my pad is getting fucked up while everything's getting (laughs) shot you know And I always think that I'm like, if this happened in my house, I would be so mad. I'd be like, no, not the couch. Um, Yeah, but there's like this moment where he's maybe it's unclear. He's maybe been drugged. He's partying. Who knows? And he sees Castor Troy's son and he has this whole meltdown moment where he like mistakes him for his son. So in the end, when we see that he ends up getting to adopt him, it's it's really disturbing to me. So I'm like. You can't just steal a random child and be like, my son again, my son's back from the dead now. And here he is. But that's kind of how the movie treats it. So he gets everything he wants. He gets his wife back. He saves the day. He gets his son kind of back miraculously in some weird way. He gets a stand in son. And yes, he gets the all-American pretty blonde daughter that he wished he had all along. She's no longer goth. She's come around. And this is supposed to be, I think, symbolic of healing her daddy issues, right? And this is something we hear all the time. Oh, you dress weird. You've got daddy issues. And and this is really leaned into. But something I think is interesting is how much it showcases that mainstream American society, there's a very narrow expectation of how you are to conduct yourself. And if you do not conduct yourself within this narrow expectation, you are a pariah. And this really makes me think of the MoMA long leash program. What's that? Oh, so the CIA covertly funded abstract expressionist art for years because it was part of this Cold War technique where 
you know, coming out of the USSR, we had these very practical, realistic paintings of workers doing labor. We had people harvesting wheat. We had people, I don't know, doing farming. So the CIA was like, to challenge this, we are going to fund abstract expressionist art. Like Jackson Pollock was unknowingly a CIA asset. He was on the long leash program with the CIA, which basically wow. just meant <laughs> there were so many steps in between him and the CIA. He was on such a long leash. He did not know that he was being paid by the CIA to make this art. Damn. And and the reason the CIA did this, they worked in conjunction with the New York MoMA to, to spread this agenda. They did these international showcases of abstract expression start. The idea was that capitalism gives you so much freedom that only something as unique as abstract expressionist art, that could only come from a system of capitalism. And to Whoa. juxtapose it against the USSR's very... Um, lifelike, realistic paintings of people doing labor was like, look at how little creativity there exists under socialism. No freedom, no freedom of expression. Not like here in the United States under capitalism, where you can throw paint at a canvas and everybody agrees it's so special. So I just think that that's interesting in the context of Jamie, because what we see is when the second Jamie tries to express herself and do something different, it's kind of the opposite of that narrative the CIA was trying to push with the abstract expression start. We see that you're actually not allowed to do that under capitalism because as a girl, as a woman, her identity is commodified. Her value is in being pretty, attractive, commonplace, and palatable to be consumed by society. And the second she stops playing into that, she is no longer American, basically. We lose her as the all-American girl next door. So to be an American woman is to be palatable enough to be consumed as an object. And that is so in stark contrast to what the CIA spent billions of dollars and decades wow. trying to tell the world life was like under capitalism. It was supposed to be so free under capitalism, <laughs> but we see it's not. Wow. wow That's wow, so wow. funny. We actually <laughs> just kind of talked about this briefly. We did the movie Cradle Will Rock with historian Harvey Kay. And, he, and that movie is about, you know, the government sponsorship of art and then also like the private, like, you know, private wealthy business interests sponsoring art. And the whole thing is that like they, their their belief is that art is getting too political. And one scene in the movie, they say, well, we'll fund the next generation of artists. What should we focus on? And one of them says abstract. So I think that's like part of this long leash program, or at least it wasn't, they didn't mention the CIA in the movie, but that's such, that's so yeah, interesting. That's so fascinating. And, and also the fact that like abstract art doesn't come along with those inherent politics that, you know, more realistic art at that time was showing, like people doing labor and the, and the like. Um, damn, wow. Thank you for that. That's a good little nugget. I'm going to keep that. Yeah, I think also like Jackson Pollock himself was a socialist. So to know Ooh. that his... His art was vague enough to be interpreted, however, was convenient by the federal government, I think is very interesting about abstract work. Well, I have a question for you both. I was wondering as I was watching this, who would you face off with? If there was someone whose face you would take, but it has to be like your worst enemy, you're like not a vanity face off situation. It's we're going to war. I'm snatching your body. I mean, the most the most obvious and literal one for me would be my mother. But I think that's too, that's too cliche. <laughs> um, I think I would go after that rich dad, poor dad guy. I, he's like, I got my sights on him. I really do not like that guy. <laughs> I want to walk around in his body, see what's going on over there. Really check it out, you know? Maybe I'd go with like a Ben Shapiro and just see how much of his 
his business I could destroy in a short amount of time as possible. But like the reverse you have to remember is then Ben Shapiro is Frank Capello. So what am I, what am I worried about? That he's not going to have sex with anyone well? Like, that's my biggest risk with Ben Shapiro. Do you really want that getting out, though, about it? I mean, he could really, he could take you down socially. That's true. That's something that's true. to be aware it of. It means he would be the co-host of Movies versus Capitalism. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what about you? I mean, I'd have to go, like, I guess I'd have to go... I'm trying to think where I would have the most effect. Would it be Elon Musk? Would that, I, and then Elon would be me? It's so confusing. I love Face Off. And he'd, he'd run the podcast to the ground. <laughs> the new hosts of the show are Elon Musk and Ben Shapiro. And then my mom just shows up sometimes to guest with you guys, to be the guest. You get my it mother. could be fun to face off Taylor Swift. We were just talking. We were talking about Taylor a lot. That could be like a that could be like a fun. I mean, there'd be a lot you could do. A lot of cultural maybe financial damage and then they would take you off that i feel like you'd be raked away real quick talk about a long leash program asset potentially yeah. there Ooh. <laughs> oh, ooh. <laughs> not to put on my conspiracy brain hat but i'm just i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna call it now and i feel like taylor would like being me yeah <laughs> now that we're back into like the the face slash off part of this movie there is something else that this movie does and i don't have like a super coherent thought around it but it does this thing that happens in 80s, 90s action movies where, like, the men, the two lead men are so alpha, they're so hetero, and there's so much testosterone that it is homoerotic. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Oh, yeah. Like, these two men are obsessed with one another. And then there's also the added layer of they are literally entering one another's skin and... There's just so many sexual overtones, undertones throughout the whole movie. And it's just it's just kind of a thing where it's like you can only get manly to the point where then you are, in fact, gay at some point. You know, like there's only so much testosterone that a movie can handle before. I don't know. Could it awaken something? Is it something that you think would actually turn men off to, you know, questioning within the, within themselves if they're having maybe homoerotic thoughts? Or is this just like emblematic of a time where, you know, just like being the most man is just not even considered anything that could even be close to homoerotic. Well, I think it's the, I just think it's the most representative of just like, yeah, just not being able to come out and say it. Yes. That's it makes it me is. think about, well, Mark, so Margaret Cho's also in this movie, which I love, I think is great. Um, She's one of my favorites, but then she, I can't remember what, I think it's like 2013. She has a, she has this whole stand up special where she talks about John Travolta being so gay that he's like Oscar Wilde gay and kind of, you know, it was like a big thing of like outing John Travolta. But, but I'm just like, yeah, well, she was on Face Off with him. She knows what she's talking about. I mean, we all know what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah. I think this is really interesting, though. Like the um, it's like the Twitter trend that's like, fellas, is it gay, too? And then it's just like the most heterosexual thing ever. Like um, there was one that was like somebody talking about Rihanna being pregnant on the cover of a magazine with like her her dude like walking behind her and this guy tweeted it and was just like seems kind of fruity to be walking behind your woman like that you know and somebody was like fellas <laughs> is it gay to get rihanna pregnant um you know but it, i think it's like this masculine obsession with how you're perceived by other men it's like women don't even enter your mind as an audience and that goes along with the patriarchal overtones of right. the movie like the women don't exist they are 
objects to be maneuvered, manipulated, controlled. They are assets. They are prizes to be won. And really, yeah, this is just performance of these men for each other, the singular obsession. And we never learn when this obsession started. We don't know why Castor Troy tried to assassinate uh, Sean Archer in the beginning of the movie. That's never explained. For all we no. know, this this vendetta has been going on like time immemorial, right? Like it's just always been like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and Sean Archer and Castor Troy. And they and, and they this idea of good and evil is replicated throughout the movie, too. The final fight scene starts in a church and Castor Troy even references it like good and evil constantly in, in conflict throughout history. So they almost are these like apocryphal kind of deities just intended. Elemental. Elemental. to Just intended to be obsessed with each other from the moment of creation until one of them dies. But yeah, it is very, very much speaks to like the male gaze, right? The men are performing for each other at all times mm -hmm. and the women are incidental bystanders or byproducts. Even Margaret Cho's line is, it's got a little anal fixation there, right? She she says this line to her boss oh, when yeah. he starts acting different. And she says, sir, did you just have a surgery? And he turns around and he's like, oh, what? You know, because he has, <laughs> he's had his face taken off for anybody not keeping up, right? So he's like, oh no, is it possible Margaret Cho knows I've had my face taken off? But no, no, she goes, did you get the stick surgically removed from your ass? You know, so yeah. it is this very... It, it, there is like a, a homoerotic element to the the man's singular obsession with each other, I think. Yeah. And then the movie also like paints this through the score and through the cinematography as like it, it's operatic. Like it's so like we're saying it is it's it's like two it's like two gods facing off against one another. That how that's how epic and large scale and how how much reverberations this singular conflict between these two men will have on the entire world. Yeah, I mean, and I think the reason, like, it really works because I do think John Woo intend he, he talks about intending it for it to be a comedy and that this is in the world of, like, mad TV. These characters are mad. And I love that that intentionality is there. It really feels satirical of all of these things in a way that sometimes the films that intend for sat satire in this way but stay in this realm grounded don't achieve. But it is like all the heightened elements are just so crucial to making that very clear. It's great. I do want to touch on one thing that will haunt me forever. The amount of face touching. And it's like... Oh, oh. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, it's like yeah. Sean Archer's families, which is kind of interesting because I feel like it really it hit on this thing where, you know, like some families have just like their own secret. Like this is how our family communicates. And in their family, they run their fingers down each other's face. Yeah, I've seen this called the waterfall when people are talking about it. Oh, They're okay. like, well, yeah. And then then he does the waterfall. And then, yeah. So this is a very unique thing. Yes. It's very, and like, where did that start? There's so much lore. I want a prequel so desperately to this movie. I, I want to know about Castor and Pollux's childhood. I want their upbringing. Yeah, I want to know about yeah, why the Archer family started doing the face waterfall. I will say when I was single, if I got drunk enough at a bar, I would just go up <laughs> to strangers and face waterfall them. And the first person who was like, wow. face off, I'd be like, we're talking now. Yeah, so... It can be an effective pickup line if utilized correctly, I will say. Just, you know, but you are touching a lot of strangers' faces. 
See, I'm yeah. one to touch a face. I am one, though, if you touched my face, I would be so upset. I don't like my face touched, but I like to waterfall other people's faces. Right. Okay. I'm definitely going to start doing this as a straight guy in New York City. Just start walking up to different women and touching their face. I think this will probably love go that. well for me. Yeah, I yeah, really, that's yeah, going to go really, really well. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know... You, what's the the saying? You might not be everyone's cup of tea, but you're someone shot of whiskey. Like it, it's gonna yeah. be wrong ninety nine percent of the time, but one person is gonna is gonna go oh, face off, and then that's the love story for the ages. That's how it goes. That's, that's true. <laughs> Violating personal space and boundaries whenever possible in the pursuit of love. On that exact note, I did want to mention, and we've talked about it briefly, but just like the sexual politics of this movie and the way that women are objectified throughout it entirely, both on both on a narrative level and on a physical level. And just want to mention, there's just a lot of scenes in this movie of women being physically harassed, sexually harassed. Uh, I mean, what happens to Joan Allen's character when Castor Troy as Sean Archer sleeps with her? You know, that that's rape right there. And yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in this movie that would not and should not go into like the 2024 version of it. So I just wanted to point that out that it's it's very of a time and a lot of this stuff would not and should not fly today. Yeah, I think that even back then I do remember it being shocking. Like um I remember being a child and seeing uh Castor Troy tell somebody working on an airplane, you know, I could eat a peach for hours and I was like <gasps> what? and I watched a lot of these types of movies. I watched like I said, yeah. Con Air was a big one in the house growing up. Any movie with explosions, I was into. Um, even like the weird Cold War era, like Hunt for Red October. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I loved this as a kid. So even when this movie came out, though, there were, I think that they were intentionally trying to make Castor Troy so vile, you know. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting thing is that the only place they succeeded in making him just absolutely disgusting is in his relationship with women because everywhere else where they tried, they tried to make him blasphemous as the priest. They tried to make him cruel and callous as the criminal. They tried to make him maybe North Korean. I'm not, I'm still not sure about the North Korea tie. Like I still can't figure that out. Um, But yeah, the thing that really did land is, is in his treatment of women. That was, I remember being very shocked the first time I saw it and there's a scene where, you know, he sexually harasses this woman on an airplane. It turns out she's an undercover FBI agent. He, sh- she- he shoots her in the head and she falls to the ground on the tarmac as his plane's attempting to take off. And I remember that being shocking even when I was a child, just how callous and how cold the treatment of women were. Um, so I wonder if it's a necessary part of making the audience hate Castor Troy, because it actually is, to me, the only effective thing that makes him not the anti-hero, is his treatment of women. But if you took all of that away, he's frankly too likable. Yeah, you know, that's really true. You're absolutely he right. He ends up being fun, you know, fun, likable guy who just wants to blow up LA. And even when they present that, that that's his goal to blow up LA, it is like an, a joke, an aside, where it's like, oh, who cares? Hell A, they're going to get what they deserve. And, you know, the audience for this, I can only imagine, is like, like mainstream America outside of LA, you're, su- I think they're supposed to relate to that. They're supposed to be like, yeah, fuck LA. Who cares about LA? You know? So I, yeah, I, I think that the misogyny is a crucial tool. It's maybe the only tool in making us effectively view him as a villain. But we should give them a little bit more credit. They weren't just trying to blow up LA. They were trying to kill three Supreme Court justices. That was the that was the main plan because that's what was going to be going on in the LA Convention Center. And and that begs to question, like, why? 
there's a political motivation there. And that's the thing that's just kind of skipped over. And, you know, it's like we're coming off the tail end of these Cold War era movies. Part of me wonders if the Cold War was still going on when the script was conceptualized, right? So we have to have this villain. And I think cinema for so long had been lazy with the villain arc. The villain was just the USSR. It was the communists. The communists were the villain. The USSR was the villain. Anything you didn't even you almost didn't even have to come up with a why if you just made the enemy the communists because the communists will do anything any you don't need to explain why so when you see that you know by the time this movie comes out it almost feels like it's written like with a lazy cold war trope but the ussr doesn't exist anymore so that makes me think that that's why the north korea line is thrown in there because they're like we'll just pick some commies i guess we need some new commies (laughs) to throw in here and then you don't have to explain, like, well, why is Castor Troy trying to blow up Supreme Court? You know, like, we mm-hmm. we don't need that explanation. It's just supposed to be taken in the American watcher's mind that, like, of course, of course they'd want to do that because they're the bad guys and the bad guys associated mm-hmm. with communism. We don't need to really understand the depths of their political endeavors or or the reasons. Totally. I mean, I think that's that's exactly it. There's also something interesting I'm realizing now in that, like, the way that political groups, especially international political groups, are painted in American media is like, you know, they're anti-American, they're anti-democratic, they're just trying to destroy us, but like usually have some sort of legitimate grievance, especially with U.S. imperialism. But Castor Troy is just a white male American terrorist, and his political leaning seems to just be, I'm just here for the lulls. I'm just here for just to fuck some shit up. And he's sort of afforded the privilege of just... <laughs> being this sort of apolitical white male American who's like, I'm not doing terrorism to take down the U.S. state or the U.S. like surveillance state or intelligence state. I'm just doing it because honestly, it's fucking fun, bro. Yeah, that's something he says over and over again. His only motivation for any of this is that it's fun. And then one time his brother brings up, well, and we get $10 million. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, love yeah. that $10 million. But you're like, from whom? For what? Like how? Where are we coming from this? Who's giving you the $10 million? And that's the thing where I'm like, well, I've seen this movie so many times that I still don't understand what the motivation of the Troy brothers was. Like I said, that that throwaway line of the $10 million, the throwaway line about North Korea, which also very interesting, the North Korea thing. They're like, Pollock says, oh, you're late. You probably had trouble with the casing on the bomb because it's, it's poorly made North Korean garbage. And Castor Troy defends it. He's like, no, no, fit like a glove. It was perfect. So we have just like, I, so Castor Choi, I think, loves North Korea. I don't, I'm like not quite sure. So yeah, we have these vague references and that's all we get to go on for his motivation. But over and over again, the thing that's actually harped on is just, yeah, that he's having a good time. He's having so much fun doing this. Oh, I also think that this could be a critique of grind culture. Oh, okay. oh tell yes. me more. Yes, yes, yes. So just this idea that Sean Archer is so committed to his job that he neglects to live his life. So you could view it that he's singularly focused on Castor Troy, but beyond Castor Troy, I think he is singularly focused on his work to the extent that it destroys his life. And his wife, interestingly, is a doctor. She also, she has a very intense job, this very high powered job, but we do not see her over committing to her job quite the same way Sean Archer is. So I think that 
there is an element of this where we see that living for your work, right, takes you away from your family. It takes you away from the things that matter most to you. From your face touching. From being able to touch everybody's faces all the time. To touch your goth daughter's face. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I, I just thought that, that was like an interesting observation that there appears to be some critique of Sean Archer being so invested in his work. Yeah. Sean Archer lives to work. Caster Troy works to live. Works to live, and he lives well. He does. Yes. Okay, so this is the part where we will move on to giving this film, film. its, it's film. very due awards. So the first award is Best Politics. Now, this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie, and Oof. we can each award someone. Yeah, wow. Best Politics in Face Off. I think maybe it's Eve Archer, Joan Allen's character. I'm just, I, there's no one else. I don't know if she has discernible politics. I don't know if anyone has discernible politics in this movie. I'm not going to pick anyone in the FBI. <laughs> I'm probably not going to pick the International Terrorist Group. So I, I guess that leaves me with Joan Allen. Or maybe the daughter. Because you know what? The daughter... Yeah. Jamie was definitely my vote. Because specifically, she pushes back against the narratives of patriarchy that are thrown her way constantly. Um, everything is kind of told, it's her, it's your fault. You know, she, she gets made fun of at school for how she dresses. She kind of defends herself. And her dad in the opening scene is like, well, yeah, obviously, look at the way you're dressed, right? And she says, you know, we'll never ask my side of the story. Like, hello. Mm -hmm. So she actually, I think, has the best politics because she's able to say that, you know, just being different doesn't mean you're asking for negative attention. And then later on, you know, when she is assaulted by the boy... She knows she did not deserve that, right? And even when her fake dad, Caster Troy, as Sean Archer says, you know, the, th the line about dressing up like Halloween and ghouls try to get in your pants, she doesn't seem to be like, oh, you're right. She's like, no. Like, her face is like, uh-uh, I hate that. So I do think she has the best politics. I think she even says, she's like, how is this my fault? She has a line right after that ghouls line where she's like, yeah. how could this possibly be my fault? Yeah. Yes. So I, I definitely, she is my vote as well for best politics in the movie. She might be a little feminist icon. Yeah. I think I'm going to, I'll throw in one other just to have another contender. I would say Yvonne Dubov, who Chris Bauer plays, who is the guy in prison who um, they say. His buddy that he helps break him out with. Yeah. Yeah. And he's getting like totally fried they're just like frying him to bits in the next room the wardens of the prison are and he helps get this guy out who he essentially didn't what did he what was that line it's so great he's like why does he hate me there's like the sandwich with the wife and the sister <laughs> yeah, like, oh, oh you had a sex sandwich i loved that <laughs> yeah. line you had a, you had a sex, sex sandwich i was like also the writing is oh I love that Fantastic. sex sandwich. I'm going to say that all the time. So he has a sex sandwich. And like, despite the sex sandwich, he there's a deep moment of solidarity where he's like, we have to get out of here. And I also loved that. So one of one, there was this one detail in the prison where they're taunting them with videos of nature. And they're like, it's like they want us to riot. They're waiting. And you feel the potential. And I, and that's just so fascinating that you're like, this FBI is going to have to incite a riot, riot and going to have to become comrades with all of these prisoners. So again, d don't know much beyond that but i think that's a good one honestly yeah. yeah he he really does come to bat for his brethren in the prison that's a good one that's true well this next one we might have some more contenders for our next award is worst politics goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie i actually have a good one for this i think it's the prison warden 
We talked mm. a little bit about him briefly, played by John Carroll Lynch, one of the best character actors out there. As soon as I get to the prison, he says, your ass is mine. Geneva Convention doesn't, doesn't exist. We can do whatever we want with you in here. Uh, during the first fight, he purposely does not break up the fight and wants Sean Archer as Caster Troy to keep beating the shit out of the other inmate. And when he stops, he's like, I'm the one who stops the fight. So clearly this guy like enjoys watching the prisoners fight one another and is just doing like Gestapo tactics inside of this prison, this like black box prison that no one knows about where he just has full reign to do whatever he wants. Yeah, so. I was going to vote for Sean Archer, but you definitely won me over here. The the Sean Archer thing, the politics I was thinking of is just like, you know, trying to take Sasha's son from her, trying mm. that technique. I'm like, this is just so evil to me. Or, yeah. you know, the statement about not caring about the Fourth Amendment, which is unreasonable search and seizure, you know, that kind of thing. So he was my initial vote. But no, I think you're right. I think because he goes on a journey. I think he grows because by the end of it, you know, he's telling Sasha, like, I'm never going to mess with you again. Like, I understand you. And he takes in their, their kids. So... I think that, yeah, probably the prison warden. You're right. I guess I'm the tiebreaker. There's no there's no real winner, you know? Like, these are fake awards. We can do whatever we want. Wait, what are you talking about? I, I've been busy <laughs> making these awards, Frank, shipping them out. What? With our production budget? What else? <laughs> okay, yeah, it's the warden. Give it to the warden. All right, our last and final award is... Best supporting slash spinoff goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. Oh, this is so easy to me. It's Pollux Troy. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Hands down, Pollux Troy is the most interesting character in this movie to me. Um, I said wanting a prequel. I would love to watch a prequel about the Troy brothers. Like if that was a movie about like their childhood up to how they become these international terrorists or whatever. But Pollux Troy's character just seems like a person who has had like the rough end of the deal his whole life, right? Um, I definitely picked up on him as being autistic coded, but there's something going on where he's experiencing ableism in the world. He, we, Like I said, we know he's medicated. We know his big brother ties his shoes for him. You know, he's just like a really interesting character to me who's just kind of treated as an aside. He's a prop for Castor Troy. But I think that he is one of the most complicated characters that we kind of encounter you know because he's not a total pushover he fights with his brother sometimes like all siblings fight with their brothers he also lives vicariously through his brother because we get the idea that he he doesn't have that charisma that his brother has so he lives vicariously through caster's sexual kind of exploits and conquering and to me he's always been the most interesting character i regret to inform everybody that when i was a child i had a crush on his character which does not speak well <laughs> about my taste in dating um but i always have been fascinated i mean him. i had a crush on his character watching it now i <laughs> that's a great pitch i've got a working title for this troy brothers prequel and it's <laughs> brother slash hood and there's something <laughs> There's something in their past, something in their childhood where like one of them was forced to wear a hood, you know, while the like while they were being beaten <laughs> or tortured or abused by their father and the other brother had to watch. So it's brother slash hood is the name. Oh, I've got wow. it. Caster. Okay. So Pollux Troy has sensory issues. So he always wears a hoodie with the hood up and he's bullied for Ooh, it. And yeah. his brother gets so over it one day that he puts on his brother's hoodie with the hood up and just goes oh, and defends wow. his brother and takes out all the bullies. That's so good. everybody That's thinks it's, it's like Paul already at yeah. a face off. I love that. That's Damn, brilliant. this is 
this is going to write itself, I think. This is really I good think stuff. we're going to get rich. I think we're really going to become millionaires. <laughs> well, Just this should be the, the, the movie. Because I, when I was researching, there was rumors that there was going to be a face-off, too, in, in the works. And please. Please. But, and but please I don't get think Travolta it would be. Cage back right now. I don't like, think that was the plan. And I think they wanted to make it like a women-focused face-off. I, I don't. I would be worried that it would not, that part of the brilliance of it is just like the 90s of it. I would be sure. worried, worried to to see what it would be. So I'm I'm here for this this prequel we're, prequel we're pitching. The prequel is the way to go, I think. I, I've really been wanting it my whole life. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm on board with this. The only other, I was going to say, I'd, I'd watch more of the, just like the international terrorist syndicate you know, family community, totally. but the, but this could get folded into brother slash hood. I think we're talking. You about, know, Dietrich the same story and Sasha. Telling. Yeah, Dietrich and Sasha are interesting too because they're a family dynamic as well. We got a brother brother with the Troy brothers, and then we got Dietrich and Sasha. We got a brother sister. We got a lot of sibling bonds in a criminal family. That is interesting to explore, actually. I'll take that one too. Yeah. I'll order that one yeah. too. I'll take both of them. Okay. Wow, we got two pilots greenlit already. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wow, Madeline, this was awesome. I honestly, like, I came in having some ideas of the politics of this movie, but you really... Yeah, you brought you, it. You had it. This was great. I've had 30 years to think about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's really in there. <laughs> so before we wrap, the last thing we like to ask our guest is, how do you practice your anti-capitalist values in your everyday life? And it could be anything from a practice you engage in to an organization you work with. I know you've already spoken about, you know, your literal business that you run. Um, but is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, my favorite thing that I do is my podcast. I don't know if that sounds like a self plug, but we take a look at the kind of international effects of U.S. imperialism. We do uh, deep dives on domestic issues that have been exacerbated by capitalism. Our most recent episode was about the 1877 railroad strikes where a uh, communist took over St. Louis for uh, four days, I believe. So I think that Very cool. that's, I, I feel like I, I'm a storyteller and that's the best way I can contribute is to tell people stories that maybe history wants them not to remember. So that's what I try to do on my podcast anyway. That's fantastic. What is the name of your podcast again? We'll make sure to link it. It's Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. Madeline, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for choosing this truly batshit, but yet absolutely amazing film for us to watch. Thank you, guys. This was very, very fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to subscribe to our Patreon. For next week's movie, we will be watching Mike Judge's 2006 dystopian comedy, Idiocracy. Thanks, everyone. Bye.